Hello and welcome to episode three of the Talk Caddies podcast. Uh, this week we're having a little bit of throwback to some stories from the 80s and 90s on tour and comparing that to caddying now with uh, two bona fide caddying legends really with uh, Jan Squire and Dave McNeely with over 65 years of caddy experience on tour and some household names that they've uh, that they've caddied for. Um, we, we talked to Dave about some, well, he's just got a million stories. We didn't have enough time to uh, hear all of them from both on and off the course. And also Jan with some great insight and how she got into caddying from the age of 12 and as a bit of a pioneer as a female uh, caddy out on the tour. So without any further, much further ado, this is episode three. Talk to me, Joey. Still up the yard. Great job. Okay. All right. Jan Squire and Dave McNeely, bona fide legends of, in caddying, I be, I, I've been led to believe. Oh, they just are. Um, so we're going to... Hello, Jan, and hello, Dave, first. How are you going? Hello, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. But, so what, we're gonna, what I'm going to ask you first, because I want to talk about... Oh, I've got so much to talk about, and loads of the other caddies have, uh, have given me a load of things to ask you, a load of stories to tell, and I'm not, I think it could be five podcasts to get through all of it. But we want to we want to kind of know what the differences are between the European Tour in 2020, assuming we were playing <laughs> the European Tour in in now compared to maybe when you started and how things are different. And I think we could ease we we could talk forever about this. But firstly, what's interesting to me is just how you got started, Jan. I, I guess we'll start with you, ladies, first. Um, how you got started into caddying and and getting out on tour. Uh, yeah, well, I went for a bike ride with a couple of neighbours to the Berkshire Golf Club, uh, ended up caddying for the day, um, and then after about a year, went to Sunningdale because they had a better halfway hut and Space Invader machines, <laughs> and then... Uh, How old were you here, by the way? Not <laughs> <old>. <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> old at the Berkshire, 13 at Sunningdale, and then... Um, carried on caddying at Sunningdale weekends, school holidays, um, left school, got a job, didn't like it, went caddying for the summer and thought I'll get a proper job in the winter. That's never happened. Um, and then went to Jersey on one tour event in 1986 with Gary and Guy, the twins. Um, I was quite happy at Sunningdale, stayed there. Eventually went out on tour in 93, went to tour school, caddied for Gromberg, he got his card, I caddied for him for a couple of years and then a few others after that. A few others after that in the in the next 27 years, we're saying. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and how about yourself, Dave? Um, I was over in America and I was trying to sell golf equipment. Uh, over in Florida, and it just so happened that Adam had a meeting with somebody who uh, this was actually coincided with an LPGA event, and it just so happened that um, this lady couldn't get a caddy, so I said, yeah, I'll do it, and um, anyway, that was it. I, I was working her for her for the next five weeks, and we never saw Saturday, but she liked, loved my enthusiasm because she kept me on. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and when was this, Dave? Uh, 1982. 1982. January, January 1982. Yeah. So a full 1982 as well. Yeah. <laughs> so you literally stayed on and then just kept working uh, as a caddy after that. How, what was the kind of progression from there? Well, I, I was very fortunate because um, I had a car and uh, whenever the British caddies, the, the, top, the top British caddies, Jan wasn't caddying back then. Uh, but otherwise she would have been there too with the superstars. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so the likes of Peter Coleman, Dave Musgrove, Andy Proger. And uh, so these guys, these guys had come over with the superstars, Langer, Lyle and Faldo. So I was kind of more like a taxi driver to them. And then when it came time for them to go back to Europe, Peter Coleman said, well, why don't you work for Faldo? And I said, well, I don't really know enough about caddying. And he says, well, he doesn't have anybody. So that was that. 
<laughs> so, you just, so I think just off there, Jan was saying how the, I don't know, I don't want to misquote you, Jan, but how it was potentially easier to get a good bag back then. You could, well, I'm not saying you could fall into it, but it sounds like Dave possibly did. Would you say, Dave? Oh, for sure. You know, it was <laughs> so easy. I mean, literally, I was green. I mean, Faldo, I didn't really know anything about caddying, and Faldo made me into a caddy. Uh, I mean, he had to because I didn't know anything, so he was at times quite abusive publicly, but uh, I was thick-skinned, willing to learn, and off we went. But that, that, that would never happen now. You'd need to have a, a good CV behind you before you could get a, a name a player of that caliber. So, so what what year are we talking here with Faldo then, and and where is he in his in his trajectory? He, is he like number one? How where where is he in golf? He's a superstar, right? Oh yeah, he was. This is back in 1982. This is April 1982. He was a household name even then, yeah. um, and that's what made me a little bit uh, reticent to volunteering to to work for him. But anyway, it, it all worked out. He, I, I kind of did my probation. And then at the end of 1982, he won a big tournament, uh, TPC at Hollandwell. And that kind of secured my position for the following year. And then, well, 1983 was, he won the European Tour Order of Merit. So I was very fortunate. Uh, I mean, as I say, that, like, that, that sort of thing right now would never happen in, uh, in 2020. Yeah. And I, I so yeah, so that's, that's, uh, you mentioned it, Jam, before we were talking just how you could almost, yeah, you fall into a good bag and, and it, the, just the way on to getting that tour bag is, was completely different, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I went to Jersey in 1986 um, with uh, with the twins, Gary and Guy, and uh, they said, oh, just, just come for a holiday. If you don't work, you don't work. Um, yeah, got on the boat, uh, 10 hours on the boat from Southampton to Jersey, got there and uh, I was in the clubhouse and silly Billy shouted over, Oi, Sunningdale girl, do you want a job? I was like, yeah, okay. And uh, it was Jose Rivero. Um, and, you know, as a Ryder Cup player at the time uh, and I carried for him for the week, actually missed the cup by a shot. And But I remember, yeah, picking up balls on the range in the field and, yeah, it was different back then and to pick up that sort of job for a week was 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 pretty uh easy really <laughs> but, yeah and, and how was the, and how does the job i'm sure there's a million answers to this question um and how's the job kind of so you, you've started out and you're learning as you go on along and you said off off air jan that you've kind of you're still learning today and i'm sure dave would agree but how is the job kind of what are the big kind of differences um i guess from what you were doing then what was a caddy's job back then uh, and what were the key things that you were doing Dave back then I think well because we did our own yardage books the, the players would never be involved in that uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, differences now is the the yardage books are so good that a player could actually go out and uh, play a golf course blind uh, so back in the 80s they would have depended on the caddy to have walked the golf course and then depended on them for the for the yardages um and also to the the golf ball that the equipment uh was much more was the 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 way the golf ball performed or performs now it's much easier to predict whereas back then the ball was uh the wind would affect the affect the uh, the flight of a golf ball way more back then so, yeah. so, so consequently, the equipment, TrackMan as well, another item of equipment which has made the players very confident with the, with the feedback that they get. They get to know their game very well. So in the 80s, I think that they would have relied on the caddy an awful lot as for the feedback. And mm -hmm. the, the caddy probably would have been more involved with, uh, with club selection. It's a lot easier now. You don't really see too many guys airmailing greens as you did back then. <laughs> No, and you mentioned you you mentioned the yardage book, Dave, and how like you how would how would the, you make would you make the yardage book? How does that how does that go? You walk the course and then you what you're just drawing in a sketch pad. How does it work? Pretty much that, yeah. I mean, it was a very very basic. Uh, in those days, they had a pedometer. Well, actually, in fact, Peter Coleman, I think he was the first one who had a who had a pedometer, a measuring wheel. And so, what would happen? You would have maybe like. When Peter Coleman arrived on the scene with his with his wheel, it would be about twenty or thirty caddies would gather around him and walk down the fairway with him, and then he would stop, 
and then you wouldn't have sprinklers, but he would stop and then he would scratch a hole in the middle, of, you know, like just gouge a, a scrape in the middle of the fairway. <laughs> and then we'd all stop and write scrape, middle of fairway, <laughs> off he'd go. And then he'd stop and scrape another one, unless he could find, a, a, you know, some sort of like landmark. But that, that's that's how we used to do it. And then we'd, we'd make our notes on the greens and everything. But there, there wouldn't be as much detail as the, what they have now. It was pretty much front of the green, back of the green, and the maybe carry of the bunker, and that's about it, you know. So, and I think you mentioned Jan uh, once again off air. We chatted a bit, quite a bit off air uh, about how much you kind of the caddies relied on just the eye, and just you, you mentioned looking at the clouds and things like that. But the caddies relied kind of on the eye more back then, as opposed to just what it's like now, basically. Well, not so much on tour, but. Um, when I was caddying at Sunnydale Club, caddying, you know, there wasn't any yardage sprinklers until I think 1986. So you learnt how to eyeball it. And so, yeah, you just use your eye. Um, but then obviously on tour, you know, people were making books. And I think by the mid 80s, there was books, wasn't there, Dave? Yeah, there were, yeah. Yeah. I think that very, sorry, Jan, I think that um, whenever there's a guy called Graham Heinrich, and uh, when he came on the scene and he did a book for St. Andrews, we were in awe. And apparently it just took him a week to make that book up. But that was the start uh, of the modern yardage book. What, what was in that that made you so in awe, Dave? Well, when we did St. Andrews, we like the way we would get a yardage, we would walk down the fairway and there was there was hardly anything to... Uh, to there was no sprinklers. So you would line things up um like steeple lined up with house in distance you know these ridiculous <laughs> things and stop in the middle of the fairway and then that was it put your arm out and line these things up and that was it <laughs> whereas then when the sprinkler system came in and graham heinrich uh, you know so he would go out and he would and he would measure them and also to uh, i think he no, he would no. He used a pedometer in those days. He, we weren't quite onto uh, the GPS just at that stage, but yeah. So he, he saved caddies a lot of time when he came on the scene. Yeah, and 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 you mentioned uh, the trackman now. Obviously, that you, you know how far the player hits every club. The player, the players manage. God, I probably know how far most players hit every club, um, just from trackman and all the numbers and everything. So back then, how? How did you determine how far each club went, Jan? And yeah, how was it kind of, we kind of know this from previous experience of hitting this shot or how did it work back then? Well, once you'd seen them hit a couple of iron shots, you'd, you'd sort of have a gauge. So, you know, you'd say you'd have 117 at the top green, you know, you had your yardage books, it was okay. So, you know, after a few holes, you have an idea. Um, so, okay, he hits his back then, seven iron, say 155. And, you know, sort of, I would write that down and then think, well, okay, he's going to hit his six iron, you know, 10 yards more, and I would just do it from that. And then, you know, after a round, you've got a pretty good idea. And obviously after a week, you've got a really good idea. You don't know the complete ins and outs, like when they want to, you know, hit a hard shot or if they prefer to hit a fade or, you know, that takes a little bit of time of what their preferences are to each shot and under pressure circumstances as well you know some people are happy hitting a little fade some people want to hit a hard shot everybody's different so you learn that uh, the longer you are with them and you mentioned um dave you mentioned about how the, the the kind of wind back then would affect due to the equipment and the golf balls the wind would affect um the the, the distance of the shot quite a lot more than nowadays um like how did you kind of learn to gauge that i guess you were learning on the job a lot with faldo it sounds like but how did you kind of learn to gauge that and different venues and stuff well that was never a precise science when you used no. a, when you used a balata ball and you were coming into a pretty fresh wind especially over water um it seemed <laughs> but just somehow or other that just seemed to be a, a very unnerving experience you were never too sure of the of the yardage and you're now you're trying to predict the wind as well but a ballad ball would do something that a current ball wouldn't do and uh which would it would stall so it would have to be a very strong wind before the a modern ball would stall and you know stop mm. would stall absolutely like hit a brick wall and just fall down and that would happen with the bladder ball quite quite a lot because it would spin so much, mm -hmm. and so you get these like up shooters, 
And once you see that there, you know, fine, well, this is over water. That's got no chance. Once you saw that, the ball just starting to go upwards rather than forwards, you know you're in trouble there. <laughs> but you would never see that. You wouldn't really see that so much now. Um, and also two side wins. Like a Balata and a side win would move, I'd say probably, I don't know, Jan, you might oh. know, know more about it, but I mean, it would move maybe five, ten times more than a, oh. a modern ball would when a side win. Yeah, I mean, if you're playing on a Lynx course and you got it straight off the right, I just think it easy go 20, 30 yards, couldn't it? <laughs> you had to really give them the starting point then, whereas now you don't. I, I, I don't really know why we bother with crosswinds that much anymore, especially in the warm. It, it just doesn't touch it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Makes our job a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, I guess from the caddying viewpoint, and there's a whole debate, isn't there, around equipment and, and whether the, the players back then were... Well, they had, well, it's obviously a different ability, but the ability to move the ball around and shape it and all these different kind of skills. Um, would you say something that that's something you've noticed, Dave, that just the skill of the players is, well, there's different skills? Yeah, I think so. I think that maybe would Seve be such a dominant force as he was then with the modern equipment? He would have, he would struggle. He, you know, he loved to, to bend and shape it. And that's what made him, you know, the exciting player that he was. So with the modern equipment, with the ball going too, like literally too straight, yeah, I'm not too sure if Seve would enjoy that quite as much. <laughs> yeah, fair. It's going um, too straight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he wanted to be in the car park, didn't he? And also, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm go, I'm literally going through the WhatsApp of all your of all your peers of things to ask, and there's probably some things I shouldn't ask. But the, just while we're back in that kind of era, what what's the kind of difference between? For, so you're a caddy, you rock up to a golf tournament. Um, what's the access to? Because nowadays it's pretty a lot of the places you get um, the caddies are really looked after with food and with access to places. What was it kind of like? back then Jan and say in the in the mid 80s on tour well you went into the clubhouse and you ate in the restaurant and um you probably grabbed a cheese and ham sandwich <laughs> and, uh, but it depends who you're caddying for they might buy you lunch or they might not so if you were looking for a new job and you're like oh that one buys lunch I'm gonna go for that one <laughs> Yeah, you had to buy all your food in the clubhouse. We were allowed in the clubhouses, I think I remember. Some locker rooms not in the open uh, back in the day, um, which has changed now. But, uh, yeah, so and food has come on unbelievably. Then we had uh, Turnberry George. He had a, a van he used to drive around in, and uh, he would make it a little catering hut and had jacket potatoes. This was in the mid-'90s now. Um, yeah, he would uh, you know have jacket potatoes special with baked beans for lunch, <laughs> and uh, and then after that it progressed a little bit later to caddy lounges. I mean, which is how that's come along is incredible. Going from living on yeah ham and cheese sandwiches to now having five star restaurants in lounges is just off the scale, really. Is that something you've noticed as well, Dave? Oh, for sure. That is quite incredible how caddies are treated now. We're pretty much on a par with the players. Um, I mean, I remember 1982, I remember being at the Bay Hill. And um, yeah, I was kind of, it was raining at the time and I was I hadn't eaten at all for breakfast. So it was now lunchtime and I hadn't eaten at all. So I rushed over to buy my burger. And then uh, struggled to get back. Uh, there was nowhere to shelter. There was like at least there was absolutely nowhere to go for the caddies. We used to hang around the, the outside the locker room, and uh, we spent most of our time waiting because there were no mobile phones. So consequently, you spent yeah your time just waiting. If he said yeah, I'm coming out at ten o'clock. Sometimes your player wouldn't come out at one until one. So you'd be just standing there for three hours, and they wouldn't care. But at least I've got a telephone now where they can just notify you said well okay but you know you're in the caddy shack so it's, everything's just so cozy you actually like you don't mind waiting for three hours yeah cause you can just chat with the guys and oh yeah you probably yeah. prefer it right absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah what what were you doing when you were waiting there so just stood outside the clubhouse waiting well there was some of the black caddies were hilarious like uh 
um, what do you call him? Um, Herman used to work for Lee Trevino, real loud guy, you know. Yeah. But he was absolutely, and, and so consequently, the the banter that used to go on outside because it was you were standing, there were no to sit, nowhere to sit, and yeah. Um, yeah, so the banter was great. And uh, as I say, the black guys, they were very, very funny. And uh, we were like strangers to them, you know, coming in, you know, stealing, stealing our bags. So, uh, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, sorry. And, and yeah, I mean, is that something that in the 80s, obviously, Jan with, um, with uh, golf wasn't, it wasn't what it's like now, not that it's, still hugely as modern as other sports but being a female was there was there things you encountered kind of who's who's this girl that's caddied on the tour or what 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 did things you encountered there being a female uh well I was very lucky because I've come from Sunningdale and there was quite a few uh Sunningdale cads around uh the twins Lafa I mean yeah it's been a dozen over the years so I was quite lucky so I I had that start if I'd come in on my own it might have been a little bit more scary but um uh everybody's been great really and and you know there's probably maybe some golfers that thought I'm not having a girl caddy for me I don't know but uh but maybe it works um in your favor and you they might think oh I might keep calm for a couple of days <laughs> uh, but no it's 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 been good really good I've been lucky been around some good people yeah uh, I've got, um, I'm literally go, just going off the WhatsApp now, Dave, and I'm going to ask you a question about a black eye and Nick Faldo. Does that ring bells? A black guy? A black eye. Oh, a black guy. Uh, oh, a black eye. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Faldo right. in America. Do you really want this story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> right. Anyway, um... Okay, well, so anyway, yeah, he, he, we were in the martini at uh, at um, Wilmslow, and I was with my my Canadian friend Duncan. So basically, then we were just uh, we had our bed and breakfast sorted out, and we had found this local uh, bar slash disco, and uh, anyway, we, we kind of you know met these girls, so they became a kind of a feature throughout the week. So then, uh, followers who was he was in contention, and on the Saturday was washed out. So it meant there was thirty six holes in the, on the on the Sunday. So <clears throat> we had had a really really late night, and um, anyway, I managed to make the tea time at twenty five past eight, and our tea time was eight thirty. So he had another caddy already there. So anyway, off he went, and he and he made the he won the tournament. So there was a there was a pro am at Northenden just down the road and near somewhere in Manchester and uh, he said I'll pick you up at your bed and breakfast and make sure you're there I'll pick you up at nine o'clock. So then Duncan and I he's won the tournament we go out we celebrate and really celebrate this time okay and we're really late and it's just completely out of order it's just so bad. Anyway, uh, the boyfriend of the girl that I was with uh, smacked me, <laughs> give me a smack. <laughs> And um, so now Faldo picks me up at the bed and breakfast, nine o'clock. I'm in the passenger seat and he's driving and he says, right, number one, David, if you had been late yesterday, you'd lost the bag. OK, number two, if I hadn't won the tournament, you'd lost the bag. My message to you is sort yourself out. You sort yourself out, OK, because you're a mess. So I now swivel around and look at him and all he sees is the black eye. <laughs> Nearly crashes the car. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did you continue to work with him after that? Well, that was nineteen eighty-three. He won five times that year, so that was all right. That kept me going. <laughs> so we lasted up, up until nineteen eighty-five. But we—I must admit, now like Nick and I, uh, like, like when you split with somebody, there's always a little bit of uh, acrimony there. But we've stayed good friends. And we were very good friends back then, and we're still now. And even though, like I probably, he he probably could have got a lot better caddy than I, but but we had a great we had great fun, and still yeah, do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it's interesting that that leads me on to a couple of things, a couple of uh, questions. But you mentioned about the acrimony between when you split up with caddies. Obviously, you guys would have split up with plenty of caddies in your uh, pl- sorry, plenty of players 
in your time and I guess the relationships tend to be different with them and, and I think Jan you kind of mentioned how you just before and you how you just kind of get on with it and you look and you just it's just constantly learning and evolving how you are with with players right yeah I mean there's uh not many caddies that haven't been sacked I don't think uh but it's part of it isn't it and uh just get on with it and get a new job and uh, off you go again and you know some of them you stay really good friends with you know years later and you know you'll always later on have a bit of banter about stuff so so it's it's all good and 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 i have actually i i caddy i mean there's a thing with uh not digging out players too much i'm sure you in the cat in the caddy lounge you maybe would between yourselves do but in in uh in public, you obviously don't want to do that too much, do you? Uh, do you? Is that for me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, Jan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, of course you 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 wouldn't want to do that. But it's just part of it, and you just honestly just just get on with it. It, it is what it is, and you just move on, and uh, away you go on the next. But I think uh, between us, we'll obviously have a little chat, and, and uh, you get it off your chest, and uh, off you go. Yeah, and uh, and Dave. So, what, Dave? Your so your career after Faldo, so We've got to eighty five, and then what's happened? What's happened then? Well, if you have a good player uh, uh, like Nick Faldo, who really is now a superstar, so it was very easy to move from a, a very good player to another very good player. May not quite be the case now, but certainly uh, if you've got a good CV, it's going to help your cause. So I, I worked for David Ferry actually asked me to work for him and I worked for him for five weeks. And then Nick Price asked me to work for him. Uh, and then I went with Nick onto the PGA Tour for six years. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very easy back then. Um, would, it's, extre- you- it's extremely competitive now. I mean, as I say, to go back to uh, the com- comparing back then to now, you see, you have uh, 15 players coming from the Challenge Tour, and they'll bring their caddies with them, which now removes 15 caddies from the regular tier, from the European Tour. They go out the other end. So consequently, you've got this new influx of, of caddies. And, and um, also, to some top, some of the top players will take on uh, friends and family. So the, the, the Tour caddy, there's, there, those numbers are shrinking for sure. I don't know. Would you agree with that, Jan? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean... I think, yeah, when I first started, there might have been one or two friends and, and that was it, you know, and it, it was very easy to move on to another job. Um, it's definitely changed a lot. I, like you say, the yardage books have just made a huge difference. It, it, does, it, does it mean that there's, it's easy? What, I, I, I'm just going to ask stupid questions, but does it mean, mean it's easier to, because the, the, the player can... Can the player can get his friend on the bag to almost just carry the bag nowadays, or how does it work there? Well, uh, I'll answer that question. I think that uh, the modern caddy now, uh, probably one of their main assets that he needs to have is that they they they, they must have he must have a good relationship. A good relationship with the player is now the number one thing. I mean, you know, maybe in the past you didn't quite get along with your player, but you were a very good caddy, so consequently he'll keep you on. Mm. Uh, that may not necessarily be the case where, you know, as I say, because they, 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 the player knows so much about his own game now and didn't use a caddy as as feedback as they did back then. So so consequently, the, the relationship with the caddy between the player and the caddy is probably the most important thing. If there's no relationship, that's it. The, the, the caddy will go. Is that, is that almost a skill you've had to evolve over time then, Jan, uh, that where the priority maybe is more relationship than other things? or Well, you've got to get on, haven't you? You've got to, you know, there are times when you, you stay in a job and it's it, you just stay in the job. But, you know, it is better if you can get on. <laughs> things have changed. I think um, there's, a lot more, um, there's a lot more psychology involved now. Because they're more aware of, and the, and caddies are more aware of, you know, how important the mental side is now. That's I think that's a big difference. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, that, that's and and is that how, how do you kind of once again like if if you've done a job for 
a long period of time, it's very easy to get not stuck in your old ways of doing things or thinking the old ways of doing things better. Is there, I guess, you guys to stay in that long, you would have had to evolve and keep learning new skills and keep working new things out, right, Dave? Definitely. If you don't, um, you're just going to, you won't survive. You have to, uh, you have to move with the times. Um, I mean, back in the 80s, once again, I'm just going to quote back to the 80s, but uh, it was a single man sport. Um, the arrival of Tiger Woods, that pretty much started uh, where the golf game became professional, really professional. And now uh, players are going to the practice ground after the round instead of like going to the pub or that's <laughs> the end of the day. You know, I mean, I remember uh, Brian Barnes, okay, I think it was the Irish Open, and it was like half. It was like one thirty or something out there, and he's in the bar, and he's chatting away to this guy, and he's on his third pint of Guinness. And then he says, well, Brian says, well, I have to go now. Nice talking to you. And the guy says, oh, how did you shoot? He says, no, I haven't gone out yet. <laughs> <laughs> that was what, that was what, that was going to be my uh, question, actually, how the kind of the culture and, and whether the working culture can, and has changed whether the i mean the caddies might have gone out for more drinks back then um and the players would have gone out how has that kind of changed jan hugely uh yeah (laughs) first of all you would never be on the range at eight o'clock on a monday morning it would be tuesday afternoon and uh and then you know yeah players would go get there on a tuesday and go out and have a good drink on uh quite a few of them have a good drink on a tuesday maybe carry it on through the week and uh, the caddies yeah it was it was quite quite a party back then uh, it's definitely changed now uh, you know you're getting there a lot earlier you're spending a lot more time at the course um and people are going to the gym a lot more than they're going to the pub huge difference and this is the caddies <laughs> that's just the caddies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, would you say the same dave definitely yeah, another thing too is um, it's now global. So we are literally all over the world. We're going through time zones. So you can't. You got to take care of yourself. Uh, you would definitely wouldn't survive if you behaved the way you did back then. Uh, you wouldn't survive as a modern modern tour caddy for sure. It's it's a it's a very very tough sport. It's a very tough career uh, being a, a caddy these days. Very rewarding financially if you, you know if. You, uh, the potential of uh, financial rewards is huge, but uh, you have to be like pretty much squeaky clean when it comes to professionalism, being there, being present, being drunk. <laughs> That's it. You <laughs> do that once and you're gone. You could do yeah. it. Every, you could do it every day back in the eighties. It wouldn't matter. <laughs> That's what. That's <laughs> Was there just a real culture? And I, I do think caddies have got this uh, this conception or misconception. And I know that's not to be true nowadays so much. Don't get me wrong. I've been out with the caddies and I had a good night out. But it's during a tournament week. It's not from what I've seen like anywhere near what maybe the misconception is. Whereas I, it sounds like in the 80s, it was like that. Dave. Yeah, I don't well, know why I'm coming to you here, Dave. Maybe because okay. it's, well, it's it part was, of it. Yeah, um, well, it was like that, and uh, I mean, it was laughable, really, uh, to how some of the caddies used to be, and uh, I mean, uh, we'll give you an instance, right? Okay, uh, 1982, <laughs> right? Okay, it's the Open at Troon, and it's I think Saturday or, or Sunday, and it's it's Tom Watson who eventually goes on to win it. Oh, no, no, it was, sorry, it was Thursday or Friday. They were paired together the first two days. So anyway, Tom Watson and Sandy Lyle. So anyway, Tom Watson's hit his tee shot off the first, and uh, I think it's Alfie Files is carrying for him. So Alfie now watches down the fairway, stands by the ball, and then Tom goes, wrong ball, Alfie, we're over here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, what would have led that's the open chapter. <laughs> And basically, Alfie's been in the pub yeah. till at whatever time. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, you, yeah. I guess it's just a lot of lads together. 
that have got a bit of cash maybe well at least a couple of them have got a bit of cash and then what else are they going to do back then well they didn't have a, a home well they might have had a home to go but there, but there was nobody married there were no caddies married back then none but it's, it's a bona fide career now so they can you can sustain a family now and have a good uh, a good lifestyle yeah I mean, back then as well, well, I, I think another misconception about caddying that we've talked about on previous episodes and I've just talked about with the caddies is that you guys are out, especially now it's global, you could be away from home for six weeks on the trot. That's Monday to Sunday working, hopefully working Sundays, um, or even quite often if your player might want to practice on the weekend or all of these things. Um, but there's you're flying around and people don't maybe understand you can be away from home from all that, not see your family uh or whatever but but back in the 80s that travel jan would have been not with the use of cheap flights or not with the use of airbnb it was very much different right well yeah i mean i do remember taking the car out onto the continent for you know a stretch of seven weeks and we took a tent and a sleeping bag just in case and (laughs) (laughs) you know and you know if you had a bit of money well you might you might fly out on a Tuesday morning and back on a Sunday night and then back out on a Tuesday morning. But that, that was that was for the elite when I first started. Uh, and then there was a lot of trains and how you got around. And, but we had a lot of fun. It, it was really good. There's a million stories there. <laughs> yeah, I think you told me. I think it'd be the, we, we put it out on our social media, but the one about where you went from Holland to Sweden with a tent? Uh, well, not just a tent. We had a camper van. Yeah. Well, it was uh, a guy called the Crunchy Nut Cornflake. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we 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 set off and uh, then we broke down just outside Hamburg, had to stay the night, got a replacement vehicle the next morning, off up to Sweden, got there, you know, one o'clock. How long was that drive in total? It must be a fair old whack. Long time, yeah. But, you know, back then we didn't have to start work till Tuesday afternoon. So, um, yeah, just to drive up through Germany was and up to Denmark was probably eight, ten hours, and then up ferry and whatnot to Sweden. And, yeah, it was, it was a long way. There was a, there was a lot of long car journeys. I remember we got the bus once to Morocco from Spain. That was a 20-hour trip. That was that. Oh. That was pretty fierce. <laughs> yeah, so getting around now is a, a, a lot different. Is that, can you, was it the same for you, Dave? Obviously, you, you straight on with Faldo earning money straight at the start by the sound of it. Um, I wasn't as adventurous as, as Jan. <laughs> I, I was like, we. I remember we were in uh, Wales at Royal Porth Call. It was the Coral Classic. This is 1982. So anyway, um, the following week was in Sweden, and uh, Faldo says, well, I'm going to Sweden now, so let's, so let's see you there. And, and in those days, yeah, I mean, it was British Airways, and it was going to cost you then, it would have cost you about £250 round trip. There were no easy jets or Ryanairs. And I said, no, 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 I'll wait for you to come back. And I just played, I just played golf at Porth Call for a week. <laughs> and drank brains beer. <laughs> you just said nah. So <laughs> yeah. imagine like a, a Faldo level player and the caddy just going nah. <laughs> Get drunk this week. <laughs> well, but that's what happened. But that's what happened. But he understood though because he knew me fine well. You know, like pretty much the airfare is going to be that's my wages. You know, so that's my wages gone. Um, yeah, but um, I mean, in those days. Well, to give you an indication of the, the the rewards, I remember the the winners the winners check, and this is kind of like I should know this here because Fallow like won five times in 1983. But it was sixteen thousand six hundred and sixty pounds that went to the winner. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting on the potting green with Big Pete, Fat Pete, who was going for Gary Coke when he won in Doral in 1982. So that was in Miami, and the winner's check was fifty-two thousand dollars, and that was a big check then. <laughs> yeah. So. And and the uh, and the with the percentages or the way uh, you guys were paid similar, or has that changed, or how does that work? Oh no, that's changed now because uh, I think with uh, with caddies becoming uh, more aware of of their worth. 
Uh, and also too with the sponsorship, the players are getting so much money through sponsorship that we have, we have negotiated much better percentages. So yeah. What would a kind of typical percentage been back in the mid eighties? Oh, probably much just five percent. Uh, Jan was probably she was on a bigger percentage than that. You know, she was <laughs> she was of more of more worth. <laughs> I didn't have many stories and jokes as you, Dave. So I know <laughs> you're not as old as me, Jan. <laughs> I mean, Jan, from um, traveling around traveling around Europe on on the the European tour, would you have how sustainable was it as a kind of career back then financially? Um, with all the traveling involved, um, yeah, how, how was it? Well, that's why we used to take the car out on the continent, uh, you know, just to save a bit of money, and we used to camp quite a bit. Um, yeah, so you – and we weren't playing for much. I remember the Tour España series, you know, I think it was 300,000 purses, you know. You had to finish top five, top ten to make any money, really. So we just stayed in uh, – Spanish pensions and you know if you had a television you were really lucky um you know now now you ask has accommodation got wi-fi an ensuite and a, and a jacuzzi um back then it was a, <laughs> a, a shower room down the hallway and uh, no television so you didn't have much choice but to go to the pub really the pub was the refuge <laughs> well, it was because you know you don't want to sit in a room with no television and just a newspaper. It was quite boring, so we went out. <laughs> would you would you say the kind of the camaraderie amongst the caddies has kind of I'm guessing here has stayed similar? Um, is that one thing that's maybe similar through the years, or has it slightly changed, Dave? Or I think maybe um, uh, back then. Uh, we were more dependent on one another, so it was like a traveling circus. So back then, you, like you wouldn't have had the euro, so there was different currencies, uh, different cultures, different languages. So it was much more difficult. So you're kind of you had to rely on one another uh, for accommodation, where to eat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas now with the internet, you know, you can pretty much do it all yourself. So I suppose, and it's understandable that uh, people would be maybe little bit more cliquish let's say or you could even just be solo if you wanted but i think we were a lot more dependent on one another back then yeah that yeah makes uh makes total sense it leads me on to a question that i i don't know if you'll be able to reel the answers off that quickly in order as well i'll start with you jan ladies first again although you might not want to go first here <laughs> thanks if i give you 30 seconds can you name the players you've caddied for on tour in order okay i'll give it a go uh matthias gromberg jamie spence uh, mark rowe mark foster jeeve milkersing um dean burmester alejandro canazares okay pretty good dave vivian brownley Nick Faldo, Nick Price, oh, Nick Faldo, David Ferdy, Nick Price, John Daly, <laughs> Mark McNulty, <laughs> Podrick Harrington, Nicholas Fast, oh, sorry, Nicholas Fast. And uh, so that's an old joke out there. I like to say, I like to say, I caddy for Nicholas. It's Nicholas Fast. But anyway, um, Nicholas Fast, Chris Wood, Alvaro Quiros, uh, Matteo Manassero, and uh, I'm going to keep you stressed. Chris Wood. Oh dear, Chris Wood. Um, <laughs> Matt Wallace. Oh, Callum Shinkwin, Matt Wallace. And, and now, Mike, Mike Lorenzo Vera. Yeah, there we go. Great team, Dave. Oh, dear. That took more than 30 seconds, Jan. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And uh, I guess what would you say, so this, Dave, the, the kind of difference between, if, you, if, we just, if I just pull two names at random, what would the difference between so a Faldo and a, and a Matt Wallace be um, just for the different eras of golfer and how... Would your caddying change between those two players? Well, I was first of all 
I mean, Nick Faldo was kind of pioneering. Um, that was a time whenever really coaching was starting to come on board. He mm-hmm. he he took on David Ledbetter, which is a bit of a risky move. There was a, people don't realize this, but like he was almost like a guinea pig to to David Ledbetter, and uh, when he uh, started with Ledbetter, which it was 1985, his game went down. It plummeted. He lost his uh, his Wilson contract. I think it was Wilson he was with, mm-hmm. and uh, people don't realize that. So that was a that was a nightmare time for Faldo. Uh, and consequently, he must have sort of like lay in bed at night, sort of thinking, well, you know, have I done the right thing here? Because my game's really gone south. Now then, it was a strong mind. He's got a very strong mind. So yeah. consequently, you know, he came through that period and uh, went on to, uh, he went, you know, it was like kind of, he went like two, three steps down to go six steps up, but yeah. he went a long way down. So great determination. For Matt Wallace, very very similar, uh, a willingness to learn, um, very uh, very dedicated uh, to his sport, extremely thorough, extremely professional, and uh, consequently that's the reason why both those players are very successful in their own eras. I'm not too sure, not without wishing to be disrespectful to Faldo, I'm not too sure if like, that that game was worked back then. But everybody hits it a long way now, you know. So Faldo probably would have had to have readjusted again to to survive. Everybody hits it so far. So, but he would have done it anyway, you know. Like he yeah. he would he would have done what it took. Is that something, Jan? And it, and comparing sportsmen uh, through eras is always quite difficult. But I guess you guys are fortunate to be in a, in a, almost a front row seat to see how the game has evolved. Um, is that something you've kind of noticed how? players of yesteryear and well, just how the game of golf has changed so much really well I think yeah it has there was a lot more seemed to be a lot more feel back in the day and you know now it's more numbers that's one sort of you know more shot making back back then I guess but that's because of the ball and the equipment mm-hmm. so, yeah and and it's just you know people go in the gym now they go stretching every day you know they they look at their nutrition, sleep, just everything. It's just, whereas before, you know, people were professional, but now it's just a whole new level. It's a tiger mania. Yeah, and would you say that is the kind of era, um, Dave, that just completely changed it? And I, I'm always interested in, in how that affects your job as a caddy. Um, but would you say it would be the tiger introdu- introduction and around the 2000s that, it all changed and how did that kind of affect your job yeah i agree with uh, jan i think that uh, whenever tiger came on the scene everybody had to up their game and uh they with tiger then the the money the purse went just skyrocketed uh so consequently the the pressure was on uh, the caddy to perform you know the, 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 there was too much at stake and I think that's even even more on the increase now. The pressure that are, these players are under now, there's where, way more stress on them now than there ever was back in the 80s. And uh, the pressure's on the caddies too. They have to, uh, they can't afford to slip up in, in any department. And they, so yeah, they earn their money. The caddies earn their money. You know? you, you'd say that that's something that's brought in just almost the professionalization or the making it more, yeah, the professionalization of the sport, which leads down to the caddies, that they're, they're just, you need to be bang on your game, Jan. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of players now that, you know, they'd be happier if, if their caddy was going to the gym. And, you know, back in the day, it was a lot more relaxed, um, a lot more pressure. Social media as well has just magnified everything hugely. And the caddies get talked about a lot more on TV. So if you make a mistake, you know, they're, they're on you and there's your pressure there. Well, there's mics now, isn't there, on you guys, Dave? Um, wherever you are, really, PJ Tour, European Tour, there's mics and there, there's even talk of uh, miking up the caddies and, and hearing those discussions, isn't there? So you really want to be on it constantly, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just as well. I didn't have a mic on me whenever, you know, because... <laughs> 
I mean, I remember uh, Podrick Harrington. He was in contention. I think it was Singapore. Vijay Singh went on to win the tournament, but on the last day, uh, um, Harrington's in contention. In contention, there's about three or four holes to go, and I think he's only about one shot behind uh, behind Vijay Singh. So there's lift clean in place. So you know, Podrick, he's now marked his ball. You know, that's it. And now he's going to hit hit a shot into the green. And he backs up and he goes, oh, no, look out there, ah, you know. And, and I think, oh, he's what's wrong? He's pulled a muscle or something. And I said, what's wrong? And he says, I know the, the ball, it moved. So I went over quiet and I said, I've got a wife in mortgage. That ball never moved. <laughs> <laughs> and did you win the tournament? No. <laughs> <laughs> I have another. I have another WhatsApp question. This is from uh, Oz, Ozzie Bry. Uh, he says, "Ask Dave. Um, ask Dave when he was with Duncan going out to check the pins in America in the middle of the night." Holy smokes! Well, you know this is yeah, I do yeah. Well, this is absolutely flat out cheating. Okay, <laughs> I mean, this is. Uh, well. Uh, yeah, okay, it's flat out cheating. So basically what's happened is that uh, he's working for Corey Pavin, I'm working for Faldo, we're at Phoenix, and there's been a fog delay in the morning, which has delayed everything. Uh, so we can't finish our round off in the afternoon. And we've got like a 15-foot putt on the 16th hole for birdie. That's okay. it. Play stopped. So we need to birdie one of the last three to make the cut. Right, so anyway, that's it. Off we go. Right, and uh, where do we, Duncan and I go? We go to the bar. And uh, we go to the Bird's Nest, which is in Phoenix Country Club. And that's it. We're just there having a great old time. And it's like 10 o'clock at night now, okay? And I don't know who, if it was Duncan or if it was me, but one of us came up with this bright idea of, hey, hey, why, why don't we go out there and roll balls and fight, get all the reeds on the greens? And uh, yeah, that's a great idea. Okay, so Duncan he he went to his van and he got a putter, a couple of balls. So we get we find F- Faldo's mark on the green. So you know, got a torch and everything, and off we go. So Duncan hits the putt. We've got that sorted out, no problem. Right, that's that's it. So we go to seventeen. We roll balls every single conceivable angle, you know, all over the place, and made notes and all that. There did the same in eighteen. That's it. So now then the next day. So Corey Pavin, he's in the group behind us, okay. So now Fowler comes up and he's got his 15-foot putt on the 16th green, okay. So and now Fowler's a great putter now, okay. And I never read anything, but I'm now over his shoulder, okay. And he says, "What do you want?" I said, "I just, I just need to know where you're going to hit this." He says, "Well, it's left lip, it's left lip." I said, "Look, I tell you what, just, just keep it outside. It's, this thing's definitely breaking, so keep it outside the hole." So if Fowler gets the right line, he holds it, okay? So when he, outside the hole, boom, and it goes, okay? So now Dunk, I can see Duncan back down the 16th fairway, okay? And he's jumping with joy, going, woohoo, there's, there's the birdie you needed, okay? So now we go to 17. He's now got a 30-foot birdie putt. I'm in behind him again. <laughs> and he says, wow, we're keen today, aren't we? I said, well, you know, sometimes you got it. Anyway, um, I said it's a double breaker. Okay, it's going to be left to right. Coming back at the end, but you know, you just, you just, just, just keep it just outside the left. It's going to break out right, but it, w- it will come back again. So and I, off it went. That goes in. Duncan, he's down the fairway, dancing with joy. We walk off the 18th. Two birdies now. Okay, looks as though we got the cut. So the last hole is a par five. He knocks it on in two. He doesn't even. He's got about a 40 foot eagle putt, and he doesn't go anywhere near the ball. He just puts his arm out. And just says to me, beckoning in, he just beckons me and says, be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we two plus that for birdie and uh, <laughs> we make the cut by two. <laughs> but blatantly, well, it's, it's gray, a grey area, you're saying blatantly cheating. Well, I'll tell you what, though, stupidly, Duncan, I, I couldn't go to Kapalua about six weeks later. And Duncan told Nick Faldo about that. And so Faldo found it hilarious to the extent that about many years later, he wanted to put it into his book. Um, and I said to him, Nick, come on, you know, it is cheating after all. So anyway, he changed his mind, but he thought that he thought it was hilarious. But uh, yeah, anyway, there oh, you so go. He, he, didn't, he didn't think you'd suddenly learned how to fantastically read parts. 
No, no, no. I never, I never went near him after that. <laughs> just, <laughs> just those three holes. <laughs> is, is there? A, that's brilliant, Jan. Is there kind of? Um, is because I think all caddies are different, aren't they? In in what they do, and different players want different things. Um, whether it's help reading or whatever, is that? Are there players that you can think of that are like one extreme to the other of how much you kind of get involved with them? Well, you adapt to your player, don't you? And, and every one of them is so very different. Yeah, some people, Jeeve, he wanted me to chat all day long and, you know, other people happy not to chat. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're so different. I was, uh, yeah. Was it, was it Jeeve that you went to Augusta with for the first time? Yeah. Yeah. So it was yeah. So I mean, you, from from uh, riding your bike to uh, Sunningdale as a twelve-year-old, not knowing really what golf was, to caddying at Augusta in two thousand must have been quite cool when you finally got there, right? I had never thought about it like that, but yeah, <laughs> I guess it is. Uh, yeah, and then when I went on tour, I think oh, it'd be pretty cool to do the Masters, and I got there, and uh, it was nice. And um, it's very hilly and very tiring, and. Uh, but uh, it was a good experience. But yeah, Jeeve was one he, he liked to chat. So um, he liked to chat, and he had a laugh, didn't he, Dave? Remember one time in <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> was this a sore shoulder? No, wasn't that one? No, no. it was when we. Went oh, I know the one you're talking about in China. <laughs> and he just. What happened? Go ahead, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just really silly, and we just all cracked up. We went out and we played a par three. And, when we went back out, it was just freezing cold and about a three or four club wind. And it's not that long a par three, but, you know, this four iron had gone about 145 <laughs> yards. And he just turned around with this look on his face. It was a big, oh, like that. And Dave just burst out laughing. So all of us just burst out laughing. You know, it had come up about 30 short of the green. But Dave saved the day by just giggling his head off, thank goodness. <laughs> You had to see it though. This was the, like uh, the stunned reaction from uh, Jeeve, I think, was the one that set us off. But then when you see how far the ball is short of the green, it's hilarious. Do you think that? Do you think that's something that you kind of have to have in a job? That, especially now, it's kind of um, you would say it's got more. There's more magnified, yeah, magnifying glass on what you guys are doing. Is it quite key? Would you say, Dave, to able to still enjoy it and have a laugh with it definitely i mean i think i'm not i haven't didn't read the book but did tiger did tiger not finish off his book finally by saying you must have fun if you don't have fun really i carry i i, I carry for two reasons i carry to have fun and uh, uh to work with a player who can win a major those those are my those are my two criteria for caddy and and uh, it, it, the the fun bit is is key to you, as in all yeah I mean you're at a job where you're having a laugh or you can have a bit of banter whether it's with the other caddies or with your player as well. Yeah, well, especially with your player, um, it's a very very serious game right now. But uh, you can you can have fun with it. You can make it as serious as you want. But there's no reason why you know you've got a choice here, um, and. My choice is to have fun, so I'll work with players who can go along with that. And if if, if I'm not having fun, that's going to come across to the player, and uh, that that relationship will almost certainly end. You're the king of having fun, Dave. <laughs> What's that, Jan? You're the king of having fun. Yeah. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> uh, Jan, kind. with that, with the current, uh, with with your current player accepted, because. You have to be nice to them. Would you? Who, who's the uh, who's the player over the all the years that you've kind of? Well, I don't know, hit it off best, but had the most fun with, and it was re- it was just enjoyable, the most enjoyable going out to work almost. Uh, yeah, well, you definitely have to look forward to going to work, so that's a, a big thing for me. Um, yeah, in their ways, I've always wanted to get up and go to work and have fun. Uh, I, I didn't mention Rowie earlier, actually, but we had a lot of fun because he was a bit of a prankster. But yeah, got, got on well with all of them, really, and try to make it fun with each of them and just just act the goat and be silly uh, at the right times. 
Yeah. Is there anyone that stands out for you, Dave, where you've worked for them or where you've kind of thought this is this is too good to be true or it's a good laugh or it just stands out or even just specific little stories with a certain player? Uh, I mean, Nick Price. Nick Price, he just loved to have fun. Uh, but it was so easy to be relaxed with him because he was just such a phenomenal player. You know, so you could have fun with him. And then, uh, you know, if I lost sight of the golf ball, I mean, I would just look at the flag. Oh, well, there it is there. You know, so he just spoiled you as a caddy, you know. Um, but, uh, like, actually, I think every single player I've worked with, I've had great fun with. There hasn't been one. So I've been very, very lucky, you know, because uh, it is, it's, a, it's a tough sport. But I have enjoyed working for all of them. Yeah. And, and would you say, um, <clears throat> I'll ask this question to both of you, but I'll start with Dave. Over the all the players you've seen with, and obviously every player is different, but what, what would you say the kind of key trait is for a successful golfer in their almost in their attitude or what you've seen from them across all the players the ones that have done well the ones that haven't done well the ones that are playing well and are not playing well what's the kind of key thing where you're on the golf course next to them and you think right they've got it here um i think it's just mindset mindset is the key you can see if if a player's got it or not um just from their state of mind and is that something that's even tangible you can just see it or how how do you can you pinpoint a time or a person the way you've seen right this guy's i imagine faldo is a is a great example of someone you just think he's just on you know or is 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 there some time you can pinpoint that or is it a feeling i think it's kind of an instinct that they have there's something within in their dna and uh, that's it you, they have a mindset where they're going to do it and they will do it. And, yeah. and are there kind of modern players that you see, whether you work uh, working with them or whether you've played with them, where you go, oh, that reminds me of Faldo, that does, or that person reminds me of someone who's, you know, at the top of the game? Yeah, yeah. You can see certain traits in a player. Like, I mean, say the likes of a Matt Wallace, he reminds me so much of a Podrick Harrington because, uh, you know, some players are they're it's they're given their talent naturally you know and other people other players have to work hard to get it they have to graft and uh, certainly podrick and matt uh they grafted uh and honed their skill and then became successful players but it wasn't easy for them they did it the hard way mm-hmm. you know but there's many a player out there who was given a lot more talent um but squandered it didn't have the mindset yeah yeah and jan would you say uh i guess the same question to you would you say it's the same thing or something different that you've kind of noticed where you know those the, of the successful players of that key trait it's very noticeable uh what they say um you know like g for example um if he messed up uh he'd say okay it's a good angle i can birdie it from there you know we might be in the middle of some trees or something and he'd be like no you know he just he just had it he just had the positivity um and then there's others like oh i've hit it in the bush oh this is not my day you know that's that to me that is the biggest difference of all is there just positive uh and i guess those two link together um yeah uh, you know the hunger you know there's the hunger and it's how how they go about it and um just pure positivity, really, and mental strength. You know, nothing bothers them. If, if it's not going your way, they'll just get on with it, grind it out, and, and they'll just fight. And, you know, they'll just say things to you, that's okay, I'll chip it in from there. And you just know that they're going to do it or have a very good chance to do it. And then the other side of the coin, oh, no, it's not my day. You know, it's not going to happen, is it? Yeah, um, yeah, oh, it's, uh, yeah it's fantastic. Uh, and, I, and I think we've, we've uh, well, I mean, I think we could chat for hours longer with you, with, with you guys. I think we could do a whole f- five podcast series with Dave's 80s drinking, caddy drinking stories. We went, uh, went on into the 90s, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll save that as a little teaser. That can be the teaser, right, that Dave's 80s, 90s and I don't know when uh, the caddy drinking stories can come out at a later date. But 
I'd say for now, thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to uh, both of you. And uh, we'll hopefully we'll speak to you again. And uh, if you're follow the talk caddies on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and you might see some more from Dave and Jan and all the other guys. So uh, I'll just say thanks, Jan. And thanks, Dave. Thanks, thanks. Thanks. And uh, Dave, we've got to tell the Rory and Nicholas Fest Hamburg story next time. Oh man, that was so good! I can't... Right, you can't, you can't do that. We've got, we've got to hear that now. You, you can't do that, Jan, and not hear it. <laughs> Go on, Dave. You're better at it than me. <laughs> no, well, I'll give a version of it. But I tell you what, though, uh, Jan's mentioned that, and it's like one of these things which is just indelibly stamped on the memory. You know, I'm working for Nicholas Fast. We're at uh, Goodcaden in Hamburg, and uh, Nicholas is. That's it. He's focused. He wants to do his practice rounds. But uh, Mark Rowe shows up with Jan, and uh, Mark says, "Do you mind if I have a, you know, just play a practice round with you?" Nicholas reluctantly says, "Well, okay, fair enough." Um, so now then, uh, we go up. I think it's the third hole, and it's been raining. It's a bit of a miserable day. So Rowe stops in the middle of the fairway to take his rain, rain pants off. So he's in the middle of that process, which is not an easy process under normal circumstances, but it certainly isn't made very easy whenever Jan decides to rugby tackle him. <laughs> so he now, the two of them are now on the ground, right, you know, like wrestling with one another, okay? And Nicholas Fast is watching this, and he's turning around to me and says, I mean, seriously? I mean, really? Is this really happening? So anyway, right, so now then we go on, we play the fifth hole. Nicholas is now playing all his chip shots from all over beside the fifth green, okay? No, sorry, it's the fourth green. So the fifth the fifth is a par three. So Nicholas is at the back of the fourth green doing all his chips up, chips up. So now we go to the fifth and on the tee box. And like Rory's left left the fourth green about five minutes ago. And now we, we can't find him, okay? Jan's just standing there, okay? And so Nicholas goes, well, okay, ask me for the yard. He hits the shot onto the, onto the par three. And next minute, behind this tee, for whatever reason, is a stable full of hay. And Mark Rowe now comes out of the stable to hit his tee shot. He comes climbing out of this 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 <laughs> the stable. Okay. So I mean Nicholas Knight is absolutely cracking up, like just like wow, can't stand this guy, you know, he's so unprofessional, you know. <laughs> so now we get round to the ninth, okay, and Rowe says to Jan, he says, Right, okay, what club is it here? Jan says, Well, it's a three wood, it's a perfect three wood. He says, Right, give us that new three wood, okay? So Jan hands him his three wood, snap hooks it way left. And then snaps the three wood in half and throws that away. <laughs> and Nicholas is looking at me, going, "I mean, what is wrong with this guy?" You know. So anyway, uh, that was it. Uh, unfortunately, um, uh, Mark and Jan decided we'll just play nine holes today, and they cleared off. And Nicholas just was left shaking his head, going, "Wow, <laughs> never seen anything like it." That's a practice round. That's a practice round. <laughs> On, on purpose, before going to the night of tea, says, right, I'm going to snap hook one off the tea and then I'm going to break it. We preempted everything and just, just just to see Nicholas's face. It was hilarious. <laughs> and I guess you guys are still having fun like that till today uh, out there, Caddy, and otherwise you wouldn't be doing it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, yep. Nice one. Okay, fantastic. Well, cheers and thanks and let's i'll speak we'll speak to you soon and hopefully we'll hear more from you guys because it's been an absolute pleasure it's been cheers guys Good. thanks for having us bye talk to me joey just get up the yard great job all right